Well, everybody, let me welcome you to Uplift. My name is Kyle, and I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, for those of you joining us on Sunday mornings for the conversation, I'm glad that you are here. And if you're listening to our podcast, Anchor Point, if you found us there, uh, so glad that you found us. We're in a four-week series called All Things New. All Things New. I'm so excited about this. I just I love the, the idea, the theme, the title. Our God really likes to do new things. And this series... Hopefully, it's going to be a fresh word in your life that new things are coming for you. So let's just jump right in. There is nothing more anxious to me and more hopeful than December 31st of any given year and just a few minutes, even the few seconds uh, before the beginning of the new year. The final countdown from 10 to Happy New Year is just its so pregnant with hope and fear and anxiousness of what the new year is going to become. I love it. I don't know about you, but I, I love it. I love thinking about the new year, what's coming, and putting the old year to bed. What's kind of cool about that is that researchers have actually validated this, and they've shown something pretty interesting. They've shown that our bodies are actually created. We are, And I'm going to show you this. We're actually created. Our brains are actually designed to want new things. That's how we were created. So researchers have actually discovered a region in the middle of our brains called the substantia nigroventral tegmental area, or I've got the letters for you, SNBTA. You can Google this later if you want. This area of our brain is activated only when we are shown completely new and novel images. That's the only thing that gets it fired up. Here's how this was discovered. So participants in this study, in a a series of experiments, were shown what we would probably consider to be normal images, indoor scenes and outdoor scenes and familiar faces. And while participants viewed these images, their brains were being scanned. And what that brain, those brain scans saw, what what they noted was that was the baseline for what they were about to participate in because... That experiment was followed with the second experiment. And this time, the same participants were shown the same images, but sprinkled in those images were less familiar things, things that were a little, had a, had a little shock value to them, things that would kind of give you a pause, maybe an angry face or something that you don't really see. And what the brain scans showed in that second experiment is that every time that the participants saw a new image or an unfamiliar image, researchers called, called these the oddball images, their brains released the neurotransmitter dopamine. And I don't know if you know what that is. Dopamine activates emotions like pleasure and joy and satisfaction. And that spike only happened when those folks saw something new. In other words, our brains are actually hardwired by God to be invigorated and energized when we see or experience something new. It's absolutely amazing to me that our Creator expects us, that He wants us to be excited when we experience something new. We're made for new. That's why we're made. It's it's unbelievable. One of the authors of this study, Dr. Imra Duzel, said this about the study. I want to read this quote to you. When we see something new, it's going to be on the screen. When we see something new, we see it has a potential for rewarding us in some way. 
This potential that lies in new things motivates us to explore our environment for rewards. The brain learns that the stimulus, look at this, once familiar, has no reward associated with it, and so it loses its potential. For this reason, only completely new objects activate the midbrain area and increase our levels of dopamine. Now, let me translate all that. God is so invested and interested in doing new things that he designed our body that way. And if he designed our bodies to want new things, then it stands to reason that God is the chiefest of all things for which our bodies are made. Nothing else. Now, this is where you kind of have to be warned here. Nothing else can completely satisfy what our bodies are made to experience. Nothing, nothing, nothing else is able to eternally satisfy what our bodies are made for. This is how Paul explains it. Listen to this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? You can read it. He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now, what Paul does here is he speaks the truth of this newness and to what we are made for. And with this one statement, he gives us a ton of truth. Let me give you three quick observations here. Here's the first. That newness is global, but it's not universal. The word if in this statement implies that Jesus is for everyone, but not everyone will believe in him. So even though we're made for this, not everyone's going to believe in Jesus. Not everyone's going to be satisfied by that. Here's the second observation. Newness defines what's old. It defines it. So if Jesus is the eternal new for which we're made, then I guess it really stands to ask the question, what's, what's the old? What is, what is old here? Well, I'm going I'm to show you. The first is from Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians, old is defined as finding our worth in labels. Listen to Paul's word, Galatians 3.28. You've seen this before. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's no ethnicity. It's got to go. You can't label yourself by your ethnicity. You can't label yourself with your power that you've been given. And you can't label yourself with some gender hierarchy. All of those things are tossed because of Jesus. That's old. That's because that's what we want. We try to capture the newness of how we see ourselves. What else is old? Well, in Paul's Corinthian correspondence, old is characterized in finding our worth and status. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Finding our value and our worth, finding newness, by our status, that's old. That is what Jesus replaces. He replaces 
any and all ways we attempt to find value outside of him. That's what's old. There are more. Those are just two. Here's the third observation. Newness can be experienced in the midst of the old. Newness can be experienced in the midst of the old. This, the new creation of all existence, of all matter, of all atoms, of all things, that happens at the return of Jesus. We know that. But until then, you can be a full participant in the age to come, and you can be that participant right now. In the previous chapter of 2 Corinthians, we read from 2 Corinthians a minute ago, Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though our outer self is wasting away. Man, don't we know that? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. We can live, we can thrive in the tension between the new and the old. But we can only do that with Jesus. That's it. Now, what does all this kind of extended introduction mean? Well, here's what it means. That Scripture actually attests to what science has shown us. We're made for new. We see that. But Scripture fills in the gaps that science can't fill. Only the new that comes through Jesus is what we're truly made for. That's it. And and listen, that is so encouraging because, and listen, there's some real talk here. It's encouraging because our physical bodies find enjoyment in new things that our intellect knows are only temporary. We know that. The study actually referenced that. I read that quote to you a little bit earlier. New things become old real quick. But listen, only Jesus is eternal, everlasting. And only Jesus is fully capable of satisfying us for all eternity. Jesus never gets old. He never gets old. So if Jesus is the new that we're made for, I want to zoom in on Jesus here. Let's zoom in on him. Let's, let's, let's tighten our focus. What I want to do is I want to lift up Jesus for you. I want to exalt him before you. And I want you to see with some fresh eyes why you are new in him and nothing else. So you're new in Jesus. And Jesus is the new for which we're made. First, because Jesus invents new. New things come from him. He can't help it. It's who he is. In fact, it's no surprise that Jesus' contemporaries knew that Jesus was new, that he did new things, that he invented new things. He was unfamiliar. He was invigorating. I want you to consider some of these reactions to Jesus that are found in the Gospels. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus healed a paralytic. Here's the response. Listen to this from verse 12. The healed man rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed. They were amazed and they glorified God and they said, We've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. In John chapter 7, Jesus said this, whoever believes in me, the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, to which the crowd responded a few verses later, no one's ever spoken like this guy. This is brand new talk. We've never even heard anything like this. After Jesus calmed the storm in Matthew chapter 8, his own disciples, those who had followed him and been with him and seen all these cool things, this, is, this was their response. They marveled. And they said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? In Jesus, people saw something new. And in Jesus, people heard something new. And in Jesus, people felt 
something new. All, while new, was thought to be impossible. I want you to listen to King Solomon's words. You know this. From Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Listen to what he wrote. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already, it's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, this is wisdom from Solomon, right? From God to Solomon. And in this divine wisdom, Solomon surveyed the world and he found that everything is repeatable. There's nothing new. Songs, music, songs are redundant. Different words, same chords. It's kind of hard to surprise you. Experiences become redundant. Once we experience something new, you can't ever have that feeling again with that same experience. What was once exceptional becomes ordinary by attrition. But but Paul's words, in Christ. In Christ. Christ. Jesus climbed the Mount Everest of impossibility and did something new in a world believed to have already seen everything that could be seen. Paul understood this, by the way. I want you to listen to his experience when he was in Athens, in a city full of temporary newness. This is from Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, While Paul was waiting for them, for his companions in the city of Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw, now that's a big word, as he saw, we're going to talk about that word, as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, Paul had had at his command all kinds of words, right? And he had all kinds of words for seeing. And the word that you and I would describe for seeing, using our physical eyes to see things, you can write this down, you can Google this later, is the Greek word blepo, B-L-E-P-O. But Luke, when he writes this account, he did not use the word blepo. He used another Greek word, and that word is theoreo, T-H-E-O-R-E-O. It's where we get our word theorize, or theory. In other words, Paul did not see with his eyes. He saw beneath what he saw with his eyes. He saw, he understood that everything that he was looking at in Athens was useless. It was unfulfilling. And he understood that without Jesus, life is just full of shiny things that were once new, but they're old now. That's what he saw. But only in Jesus can new be found. And eternal new. Because it's Jesus who invents it. He's the fountain. He's the source of creation itself. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul wrote that by Jesus, all things are created. This is just what Jesus does. He does all things new. And because of that, here's the second thing, he inspires new. He inspires new. Now, the story 
of what Jesus inspires is actually told in great detail in Acts chapter 2. And in fact, if you have your Bibles or if you have your, your phone, I would actually, we're going to read, it's going to be on the screen, but I would invite you to open this up to Acts chapter 2. We find that what Jesus inspires is told here in, in great detail. Now, let's talk about it. The story in Acts chapter 2 begins with a plethora of all kinds of new things. So let's read this together. It's Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Jesus' followers were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and it rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here's, here's a couple of the new things we find here. First, we find a brand new experience. All of this is based upon the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. After that moment and his ascension, we find a brand new experience here. Jesus' followers experienced the Holy Spirit in a fresh way, a brand new way. In fact, there's no explanation for this experience. The writer of this account, Luke, he writes this account years after it happened. He did some investigation. He writes it all down. And he was still at a loss for how to describe that for which he had investigated. Look, the sound, he said it was like wind. It was like it. He couldn't really explain. It's like wind. I don't know what it was, but it was like wind. And the light that comes in the room, he says it's as a fire. It's like fire. I don't know. It's not tongues of fire, but it's, it's like that. Inexplicable, brand new experience here. We also find in Acts chapter 2, a brand new message. A brand new message. Because a little bit later in this chapter, believers were asked about this experience. They start talking in different languages. People want to know what's going on. They leave this room. They walk out in Jerusalem. They're, they're being able to talk to people from all over the world. And they're being asked, how is this possible? And so it was Peter who addressed the crowd. This is from Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verse 14. Now Peter, but Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, they're not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. Man, all kinds of new stuff here. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is a brand new message. Nothing like this had ever been said before. And what Peter's response was is this, this new experience is from God. That's the only way we can explain this. It's from God. It was prophesied, and we're the fulfillment of it. I don't get it either. You just kind of hear, I don't understand it. I don't understand what happened, but I know where it came from. I know exactly what the source is. But just like a late-night infomercial, Peter says, but wait, there's more. Look in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Man, Peter just takes it to him. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders 
and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, oh man, can you, can, could you imagine? He puts himself out there. You crucified and you kill, and he was killed by the hands of lawless men. Now that, that was pretty brave. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not, you gotta, you gotta listen to this one, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skipping down to verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, and he says it again, whom you crucified. Now in this message, there are four critical pieces of information that Peter shared with the crowd. We're going to put them all on one screen. You need to write these down. First of all, they knew Jesus. Peter says, you knew him. You knew this guy. He's not a legend. He was real. He was real. His wonders are fully attested. They're undeniable. You know exactly what this guy was. Here's the second thing he said. They killed. You killed. You killed Jesus. You did it. You killed this guy. God's plan was for Jesus to be crucified by the very hands of this crowd. They did this. Here's the third thing. But they couldn't stop Jesus. This is the third thing. I want you to listen to the divine power here in this passage. And I pulled it out for you in verse 24. It was not possible for Jesus to remain dead. It was impossible. Couldn't happen. There wasn't a choice to be made here. Jesus had to be resurrected. Man, we could, we could go all night on that alone. Had to be. Here's the fourth thing. Because of all that, they owe Jesus their worship. Knowing Jesus was real, not enough here. By the way, it's still not enough. A lot of people who believe Jesus was real. It's not enough. Jesus is the anointed one of God. Thus, he deserves their worship. That's what Peter says. He's the resurrected one, the one who can't be stopped, and his resurrection validates his deity. He is God. That's what Peter says. Now, you know what this message is, right? You know what this is. This message preached by Peter, it's the gospel. Peter preached the gospel. He preached the gospel to this crowd, and it's the gospel the message of Jesus' appointed death and resurrection that inspires newness. Because the gospel informs us that you and I are as complicit in the death of Jesus as those who heard Peter. This is the gospel. We're guilty. We are guilty. And hearing the gospel has only one proper and authentic response. Now, this is a big one, and it was voiced by those who heard Peter. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, when they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What, what, what shall we do? This is the question of those who are out of options, those who are out of time. 
out of resources. Of those who know that the truth is not overshadowed by confusion. And if we're honest, it's the kind of question we've asked in our darkest moments. With nowhere to turn and with no one who's going to listen, what do I do now? What do I do? I've asked this question in that sort of sincerity at least two times in my life. My faith wasn't under fire. I mean, like you, I've been through seasons of doubt, but the times that I asked this question were not in any of those seasons. I I had no clue, no idea what response should be in those particular moments of my life, but I did recognize the need for a proper response, and by God's mercy, He kept me still, and He kept me immobile because His mercy is so sweet to me. And it's that kind of desperation that crept into this crowd when they heard the gospel. They believed. They believed the gospel. They just didn't know what to do about it. And it is that. You got to listen. It's that belief, that new, fresh belief, as fresh as a, a baby's first breath. It's that that Jesus inspires. It's brand new. It's that very moment when you realize your guilt and you don't know what to do. Belief in this context, is an emotion of action. I believe, tell me what to do about it. And look, only those whose lives are transformed can ask such a question. Our bodies, our physical bodies, they're fine-tuned to crave new. And it is Jesus that inspires new. He brings it forth in our lives. When we hear the gospel, we respond with this new belief. It's not, it's not a fleeting belief. It's not a belief that satisfies some sort of emotion. It's a belief that springs from knowing our sin crucified Jesus. We believe that and we know it's time to do something. And I want you to listen to me as we close. New things are born in your life from the moment you believe this. Unlimited possibilities. Because this kind of belief that Jesus inspires, it's a moment of surrender. What it is, when we put our lives in the hands of Jesus and we let him transform us into the new creation we're we're meant to be.